Last week, we talked about this verse in John chapter one and verse five. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness cannot overcome it. And this series called Distorted Echoes is about, is about making sense of the world through the lens of Jesus. Essentially, we're, we're making this confession, a very Christian confession, that the world is a series of distorted echoes. Things can be made sense of, however. This is really what we're trying to talk about, is that the world doesn't need to be confusing all the time, actually. And the world isn't even fundamentally bad. Rather, the world is broken. And because the world is broken, our perceptions, our way of, of seeing the world is often broken too. So we might want to do justice, for example, but our take on justice is often problematic. How we do justice is difficult. But this verse in John chapter 1 and verse 5, it introduces a tension for us. A tension, quite obviously, between light and darkness. There is light and there is darkness, and the darkness cannot overcome the light, which is sort of telling us that the darkness is trying to do that. But think about this idea of this tension then between light and darkness. This isn't a difference of opinion or a disagreement of perspective. But John sets up for us in the fifth verse of his gospel, a tension between opposing concepts. It's light versus darkness, which very quickly we see is also then the question of right versus wrong, the question of justice versus injustice. And at some level, <laughs> these tensions are elementary. Like from birth, we seek justice. We want things to be fair. We want things to be right, particularly when it comes to us. Let's call this <laughs> the Liam Neeson effect. Now, what do I mean by that is that I'm the dad of a daughter, so much the same as Liam Neeson was in his hit film, Taken. Although pretty much that's our only similarities, but you, you know what I mean, right? And, and, and for me, I'm, I'm committed to the way of Jesus. I, I want to be a follower of peace. I want to practice nonviolence. I want to live in grace and forgiveness. But when I watch the film Taken, when his daughter is kidnapped and he, he goes on this rampage against anything and anyone that stands in his way, like, I get that. And despite having a deep-rooted knowledge that the only skills I've spent a lifetime developing would be of no use at all in such a situation, there's a part of me kind of wants to know that I could be like Liam Neeson too if I had to be. And listen, I've done the research. Most parents agree with me that they watch that movie and think, if that happened to one of my family members, I would want to be able to do that as well. Even if ethically, that's not the way they know the world would be made better. Here's what I think. I think that there's something in us. There's something in us that yearns for justice. We, we long to see certain wrongs of the world corrected. It's just, it's deep down inside of us that it's what we desire. And we know, we know that history is a continual cycle of, of justice and injustice. Whether it's wars between nations or fights between people groups or even just the clash of ideologies that so often happens. Whether it's the oppression of races, indigenous people or poor people. 
or whether it's movements of hope, like the anti-slavery movement so many years ago and civil rights movements on the light or, or anything in that sort of category. Well, there's something in us that tells us that something's wrong in the world and it should be put right. So we're drawn to the things that seem to correct it and we despise the things that seem to be wrong. The difficulty for us is knowing that things should be put right and understanding how to put them right is really difficult. Because this cycle of justice and injustice in the world, it runs deep and wide. So in one sense, it's easy to sit and talk with our friends about the grand issues, the injustices that are at national and international levels. But we also have challenges with the work of justice at smaller levels. What about the tensions that we have within our families or with our neighbors? <laughs> the workplace or the schoolyard bully. Injustice can find itself amongst us in many, many ways. And let's be honest for a second. If I asked you right now to start writing a list of everyone who has wronged you, like how difficult would that actually be? How long would your list be? Or would you be able to write it quite quickly? But if I then asked you to fix that list, to put things right on that list, how difficult would that be? Well, in some cases, you might even say it's impossible. In some cases, you might even say, I'm not sure if it would even be right. And that's the challenge of talking about injustice and justice. Because you see, even if we're just talking about our own lives and the injustices that we faced, it's difficult. In fact, it's a problem that often seems not just difficult, but impossible. In the book, Broken Signposts, Tom Wright explains it well like this. He says, we find that justice serves as a signpost toward what is foundational or essential to our lives. At the same time, we find that it's a broken signpost in that no matter how hard we strive to live up to the ideal, we fail, often in ways that create more injustice. And perhaps you find that easy to agree with, that it's not that we don't perceive the rights and the wrongs. It's not that we can't see the justice and the injustice. It's that our best attempts to fix it quite often seem to make things worse. They seem to make more injustice when our intention was to bring justice. So what do we do about that? Well, let's go somewhere really familiar. <laughs> that one verse that pretty much everybody has likely encountered somewhere. John 3 and verse 16. It says this, and you probably, you might not even need me to tell it to you. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son so that everyone who believes in him may not perish, but have eternal life. And if that's relatively well known, it's unlikely if you've had any engagement with church that you've missed that verse at some point. It even appears at the occasional ball game. But this verse is part of a larger passage. And the larger passage continues immediately like this. After the famous verse, the writer John, he says this, Indeed, God did not send the Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Those who believe in him are not condemned, 
Those who do not believe are condemned already because they have not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment, that the light has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. For all who do evil hate the light and do not come to the light so that their deeds may not be exposed. But those who do what is true come to the light so that it may be clearly seen that their deeds have been done in God. Now, what you see here, it relates back to how my opening verse in John 1, 5 syncs with what's happening in chapter 3. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness cannot overcome it. But that doesn't mean that the darkness won't try. So notice what John's doing. And the language may feel a little bit heavy and a little bit like, whoa, David, this is a little bit much for a Sunday morning. But John is showing us how the arrival of love and light and truth and justice, well, they're not welcomed by everyone. Some people are really comfortable in the injustice despite God wanting to eradicate it. You've got this tension, this stress, that actually for some people, the way the world is in its brokenness suits them quite well. They're okay with that. And John's talking about the arrival of light and love and reminding us that it's not welcomed by everybody. Now, if you follow John's logic here, then what you'll end up with is a broader image of Jesus. And I sometimes think that this is what following Jesus actually involves, starting with like a really small view of Jesus and slowly expanding it as you grow, that you start to understand that Jesus is bigger than you thought. Your picture of Jesus grows because now you see that part of this thing called eternal life that we read about in John 3.16, part of that is Jesus brings God. He brings a God who wants to put right the wrongs of the world. He wants to expose the wrongs of the world. So now we realize that John is showing us that when he says God sent the Son, what we all of a sudden realize is that God has inserted himself into the injustice of the world to correct and model a right and just way forward. So now think about Jesus. He talks about justice and how God wants to put things right. But Jesus also suffers the most intense injustices. So he comes to talk about God's justice, but encounters injustice all over the place, not just in his undeserved death on the cross, but also in the various accusations and threats that he lives through. That Jesus lives out this challenge of doing justice in a context where not everybody likes it where there might be huge injustice. What we learn for that is that God is always on the side of the victim. And the strange thing about the Christian story, therefore, is that God knows what it is to be a victim. But we also know that God sent Jesus because he doesn't want injustice to have any more victims. So you can see how this story holds together for John, that the sending of the Son with a message and an encounter that brings all of it together into sort of stark view for all of us. But let's just think about that for a moment. Why does God send Jesus? Well, if Jesus is the bringer of justice, then that should 
cause us to realize that injustice is a bigger problem than we might think. It's a problem that needs a divine solution. <laughs> like, well, think about it this way. If it needs a divine solution, it's probably a bigger problem than we realized. And this is important for us because it's popular in some circles, including Christian ones, to see all of the problems of the world as a result of human behavior. It's like, well, the reason we're in this mess is because we did this, and the reason we're in that mess is because we did that. And you can see this by how often we assume that changing our behavior will solve all the problems. You, constantly we see it in our commercials, in our advertising, in our conferences. If we would just do this, then this would fix everything. And unfortunately, all this often achieves is it increases our ability to blame each other for the problems. The problems, however, will they persist? So what we're heading towards, however, in John's gospel is to realize that it's a distorted echo of justice that assumes that justice can be brought together via human behavior alone. And that's because injustice is bigger than human behavior. Notice what Jesus says in John chapter 12, in verse 31 and 32. He offers us this little insight. Jesus says, now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be driven out, and I, when I'm lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. Now, you see what Jesus is doing there at that particular moment. There's this ruler of the world that when Jesus can, can remove this ruler of the world from that place of authority, then he is able to draw all people towards himself. You see what Jesus is doing? Like what we're seeing here is that behind injustice, the Bible posits a bigger problem. Evil. The ruler of this world sometimes known as the father of lies, perhaps better known as the devil or the Satan. Essentially, it's a biblical premise that there is an anti-God power that is behind the brokenness of the world. The Bible refers to it in Hebrew as Hasatan, where we get the word Satan from, but it literally means the accuser. And I find this interesting given that so often one of the offshoots of evil and injustice is that we start blaming and accusing each other. However, referring to a behind-the-scenes power isn't to excuse our terrible behavior and the attitudes of injustice that we encounter, far from it, but rather it's to identify that there is a bigger problem behind the problem, the problem of evil. Now, much could be said about what's wrong with the world, and often the things that are said often become unhelpful because we start blaming humans and each other. But the beauty of the story of Jesus and the cross is that it's a constant reminder that we can't save ourselves from evil. We can't do it by ourselves. And therefore, if we cannot save ourselves from evil, then it's likely that we need to look at injustice differently too, because if injustice is a result of an underlying evil in the world, we're not gonna fix it ourselves. The cross reminds us that as God suffers injustice and absorbs injustice, that he will never be seen or understood as an agent of injustice. Injustice is never God's plan. And you kind of know this because injustice, if you just look around, it's never fairly distributed. Injustice is always unfair. 
so we know that there's something broken going on there. Something bigger than perhaps we always see. And not only that, the cross, the cross is the culmination then of a much longer story of God's objection to injustice. So as you're trying to piece all of this together, you start to understand what God's trying to do in and through us, beginning with Jesus. And then you realize it begins earlier than that. Now, the beginning of the story of rescue in the Bible is when God calls a man called Abraham to begin a family and become a nation that will, that will be the source of the world's blessing. But why Abraham? And why in this particular way? Why is God doing things the way he's doing them? Well, the rabbi Jonathan Sachs points this out to us. He says there's only one passage in the whole of the Old Testament that explains why God chooses this particular approach. Why does God choose Abraham specifically? Now, you see this text in Genesis. We get this little text. The Lord says, shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? Seeing that Abraham shall become a great and mighty nation and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. No, says God, for I have chosen him that he may charge his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice so that the Lord may bring about for Abraham what he's promised him. This is Genesis chapter 18, verses 17 through 19. But I wonder, did you see it? Did you see what happened in there? The Lord says, Abraham and his family will keep the way of the Lord. This is why he's chosen them. Well, how do they keep the way of the Lord, we ask? Well, that's there in the text as well, that they're going to do righteousness and justice. Now, there's two Hebrew words used here because this was originally done in Hebrew. The one Hebrew word is mishpat, that we translate justice often. And the other Hebrew word is tzedakah, which we often translate as either righteousness or justice. Now, the first word, mishpat, it means it's probably best to translate it as retributive justice, essentially the rule of law. It's the type of justice that relates to the rules of how we behave. How do we settle disputes and not descend into a society of revenge and vigilantism? Mishpat is the type of justice, the type of law that decides innocence and guilt. And as much as we need justice like that, we need a justice that frames how we behave around one another. Mishpat cannot create a decent society because it can only uphold the rules of justice as they're defined in that particular place. Because God also, however, calls his people and Abraham to not just do mishpat, but to do tzedakah, which means distributive justice. Think about it like this. A just, let's say it in, in, in quotes like that, a just society could observe all of the rules but still contain massive inequalities. But a righteous society, it couldn't do that. And so God's people are to ensure that the justice that is at the basis of what we do and how we live is rooted in tzedakah, that it's not simply just, but it's also right. And, and this is the reason why God begins this story, to set things right. So from the beginning of the story through to the cross, there's a consistent pattern that God's people and then God himself in Christ are living out an alternate life that rejects the injustice and therefore the evil of the world. 
So we should look at the problems of injustice differently because we understand them differently. Like notice what God says about Abraham. He will do righteousness and justice. Jesus in John's gospel offers his disciples a vision of the world that rejects injustice. As it says in John 16 verse 8, that he will prove the world wrong and invite the disciples to participate in something different. If you go back into this book, Broken Signpost by Tom Wright, he shows us the contrast that John is drawing throughout this phenomenal gospel. Because on the one hand, you have the cross and the death of Jesus. And if you think about it, you know this picture well. You've seen this picture before. This is how the world works, where the innocent are regularly and commonly victims of injustice. Like We see this every day. But then on the other hand in John's gospel, you have the resurrection of Jesus, where the innocent, the innocent is restored and vindicated. And that's not something that we see so often in the world. That's not something we encounter regularly. But that's what God is inviting us to be part of. So how does that happen? Well, Tim Mackey has this beautiful expression about biblical justice. He says it like this. He says, making someone else's problem your problem. That's what biblical justice is. Like, I love the simplicity of that. Making someone else's problem your problem. The justice of Jesus, the tzedakah of the Old Testament, begins by seeing differently. It's not just their issue. Injustice isn't a them and us issue. The beginning of doing justice, of seeing how Jesus makes sense of justice, is found in seeing the problem as our problem. Like There's a lot of injustice in the world. So much injustice, too much injustice. And lots of it isn't far away. You don't need to travel to see it. In our city in Calgary, we have issues of people trafficking. We have systemic racism. We have abuse and much more injustices happening on a daily basis. And the same will be true in whatever city that you're watching from. And it is so easy to see it as something that someone else should deal with. But what if it was our problem? Well, we might not be able to change policies or adjust government budgets, you might say, but what can you do? What would it look like if we saw injustices on our own doorsteps and thought of them as our own problem? To not just think about the huge impossible beyond us problems, but even the small stuff that we encounter regularly. In his essay on the word tzedakah, Rabbi Jonathan Sachs continues by pointing out that the re one of the reasons he loves this Hebrew word tzedakah is because in English we have two separate words to try and translate this one word. See, because in English the word tzedakah is sometimes translated as justice, as we have done so far, but it's also translated as charity. Like, whoa, we say, those are different ideas. Because we tend to think of justice as well, justice is getting what you deserve, right? And charity, well, charity often is thought of as getting what you don't deserve. But in the biblical mindset, these are the same thing. Because justice shouldn't be given out on the basis of what is earned 
or deserved. But justice should happen because it's right, because it's the way it's supposed to be. So may you come to realize that God loves the world and he wants to set things right. May you be confident that his light will shine in the darkness and not be overcome. And may you rejoice in the truth that true justice is to make other people's problems your problems. Because that, after all, is the story of the cross, of a Jesus who dies for our problems, not his. And may his grace and peace be with you.